The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this chapter from Jack Kornfield's book, The Wise Heart, where he talks about the middle way. So we'll continue talking about this tonight. I'll save a little time for discussion at the end. I mentioned last week that this was uh, the first point he made in his very first Dharma talk. So it has a certain significance in the Buddhist tradition that's teaching on the middle way. It's easily misunderstood. You know, we normally think of the middle way as being halfway between this and that halfway between two extremes. But really, it's, it's about uh, leaving behind the world of extremes, or the world of opposites. We don't necessarily realize it, but we can, we can specifically notice how dependent our mind is on opposites, on dualism, good and bad, for example. It's really hard for us to organize our world without the sense of good and bad. And even if you know you try to do that right now, generally we'd make this assignment into good. And if we didn't do it, we'd be bad. So it's hard to draw a dualistic view or it's hard to be free of the world of good and bad. It's so much our habit. Jack Hartfield says, the middle way is found between all opposites. Rest in the middle and find well-being wherever you are. And as I mentioned last week, he quotes Shantideva, this famous Buddhist monk from long ago, an Indian monk, who described this middle way as complete non-referential ease. And the important word here is the non-referential. So like to be in a moment, like this moment will do, right? To be in this moment, but the sense of ease, the sense of release or well-being isn't fixed or isn't because of anything. It's actually an ease precisely because the mind isn't fixed you know, fixed about this as opposed to that. It's amazing how much of our lives, how much of today maybe even, we suffered, we felt stressed because the experience didn't fit our, you know, didn't fit in our ideas of good and bad. Well, I can't be happy, I can't be at ease, because I have all these things I have to do. Or I can't feel good because I, I did a stupid thing earlier in the day. So a lot of our suffering, we think it arises because of something that's happening to us. But a lot of our suffering actually arises because the particular view we have demands it. 
you know, I can't be happy because this is who I am. I'm this stupid person, or I should be happy because I'm this way. We find ourselves dependent on our stories, the views that we have. So, we have these opinions, we have these views. The way to be free of the views and opinions, you know, all the different ways we organize our world with concepts and ideas, wanting to be free of our concepts and ideas and views is another idea. So, one of the things we discover pretty early on in the practice is that we have to be aware of what the mind is doing. So we're in a room now with a lot of people. It'd be nice not to have a lot of opinions about each other or opinions about ourselves. I'm probably one of the worst meditators in the room or I'm probably one of the best meditators in the room. Or I don't know how I compare. We're probably all the same. So whatever the view you have or we have, you know, we can't make that go away, but we can be aware that we have that view. Whatever emotion that's arising for us right now, we can be aware that there is this emotion, there's something that's being known. And this is how, this is really the way to freedom. It isn't about being a human being without thought or without emotion. It's about recognizing that there are thoughts, that there are emotions, and recognizing what those thoughts and emotions are. They're just thoughts. It's just emotion. So, this makes it relatively easy. You know, if our path was somehow to be in the world but not have thought and emotion, we would be in trouble. You know, because it's not really possible. Having thoughts, having emotions, it just comes with the territory of being a human being. There's no going beyond that. But we can release our attachment to opinions, to views, to ideas, to notions that arise, to emotions. So everything's moving. The thoughts are coming and going. You know, we see somebody and for whatever superficial reason, the way they're dressed, the way they are, pushes our buttons. But we can see that and we can just know that that's what's happening. It's just that. It's just the scene of somebody seeing these particular attributes. Those particular attributes and the scene of them trigger maybe a particular reaction. But the mind keeps seeing it all. Oh, it's just like this. This is what, what's happening. And we don't have to get identified and then act it out like, well, I'm better than that person. And then get lost, get fixed in that idea. So the thing to pay attention to isn't whether there are thoughts and emotions, but whether the mind is sticky with them, it's fixed with them. It's in some kind of dependence on an idea, on an opinion, on an emotion. Like, is our mind right now investing in some thought, some opinion, some idea, some emotion? Like, for example, you might have had a hard day and you feel a little tired now. Being tired in and of itself isn't the cause for suffering. But being identified with the experience of exhaustion 
can lead to suffering, you know, and like not liking it, or not liking who we think we are because we're exhausted, or not liking the day we had because now we feel this way. So then the mind has an idea, a view, and it's attached or identified with that view, and then because it's, in a sense, captured by that idea or view, it has to act in a way that makes sense within that little bubble, that little view or opinion. And all of that is very oppressive. It comes with a psychic weight, which in Buddhism is called dukkha, or suffering. When the mind is fixed, fixed in view, fixed in opinions, fixed in some thought about things, a task, defined in some way, then our life as a human being is very limited. And we feel the limitations of whatever bubble overlay we've created for ourselves. Just think about our top ten, you know, our, our top five bubbles that we live inside of. You know, bubbles having to do with like not being good enough, this wasn't fair, I want this, if I had this I'd be happy. You know, and then when we have that view, that opinion, that idea, and the mind is fixed or independent on it, then we suffer accordingly. So the suffering, the tension, the weight comes because the story demands it. Like if we have this idea that I've had a miserable life, nothing really good has ever happened to me, how could we feel light and alive and happy? It just doesn't fit. You know, the appropriate way to feel, if that's the story that my mind is dependent on right now, is to feel oppressed by having been the person where nothing ever good has happened. So I feel according to the story that my mind's attached to. If we have a story that I'm on the top of the world and good things are happening to me and the good things are going to continue to happen to me, well then I need to feel another way. And if I actually, if, if the feeling of depression, for example, arose, that wouldn't be okay, you know, because it doesn't fit. So that has to be denied. Probably assume it's just something I ate, you know. Or we blame it on somebody else. You know, you're just making me feel down. You know, blame it on our partner, on the weather, because it doesn't fit. You know, I'm a happy person. I'm a lucky person. You know, it's relatively easy for us to start to recognize some of these bubbles, some of these patterns that we get identified with. And the neat thing about just getting relatively good at recognizing that is it begs the question, well, what is the mind, what is the heart free of this attachment, free of the mind being dependent on this story? It's like if we don't see the mind's dependence, its attachment, its clinging to a particular view, opinion, story, we can't imagine, we can't intuit being free of it. So the freedom depends on seeing the attachment. The freedom from the attachment depends on seeing it. If we can really see how our mind right now is clinging to something, like you might have an idea that 
whatever you think this practice is that we do at Common Ground, but I never get it. And you could be clinging to that idea, like I never really get what this is. And we could just notice how oppressive that thought is. The thought itself and the attachment to it is oppressive. But if we really see what the mind is doing, that the attachment, the identification is the oppression itself. It's not like two things. Feeling burdened by not ever getting this practice is exactly the same as being identified with that thought. And then the mind releases that identification, and then we see very clearly what it's like not to be believing that thought. Sometimes in practice we call this the don't know mind. Because we, it doesn't mean about believing that I am somebody who gets the practice. That's not, we don't go, I mean we may, but that's not the point to go from thinking I'm the person who doesn't get what's going on here to I'm the person who's mastered what's going on here. It's really about releasing both of those fixations. We're not fixed, the mind isn't fixed on the idea like I really get what's going on here or fixed on the idea I don't know what's going on here. So that's what we call an open mind or a non-fixed mind or free mind. I think I mentioned a little bit last week, you know, we, we have this idea that we have to be, um, we have to define or have some set meaning about who we are or what's going on or whether my relationship with my partner is good or bad, whether I'm a nice person or a bad person, whether the world is safe or the world is not safe. In a way, from a relative point of view, the way we live conventionally with each other, it's like we feel quite naked and uh, exposed, anxious if we, if we live in an undefined way, if we're not defining ourselves, each other, the world. You know, if I said something like the Middle East, you know, you'd all, we'd all define it. Some of you would define it by saying, God, I just don't get what's going on there. You know, some of it, some of people would define it, God, those Palestinians, why do they keep attacking the Israelis? You know, some of define it another way, why do the Israelis keep oppressing the Palestinians? You know, why does the United States do this? Why does the United Nations do that? So we have these different sort of set notions. Same with our parents, you know, bring to mind your parents, or bring to mind any relationship. And very quickly, you'll see that the mind projects some meaning. It's like we create safety by defining whatever it is. You have some set meaning about common ground probably, whether you're conscious of it or not. It's a really nice place or it's a really weird place. Or but we have meaning about almost everything. And when we don't, we very quickly create some meaning. But we can cultivate the opposite habit. Recognize that compulsion, that neurotic compulsion to define things. Notice that it's stressful. And experiment with being free of the attachment or the mind's fixation on any particular notion. There may be notions floating around, coming and going, but we're training the mind not to fix on any particular notion, not to identify or attach. 
I mean, imagine going through the day without really knowing who you are, or whether you're having a good day or a bad day, or whether you've been skillful or unskillful, but just moving through the day, practicing not letting the mind come to conclusions. Who knows? Who knows? And like this, do we need to know with any certainty in order to have a good day or to be a good person? Does it help or is it necessary? So this is, a, you know, this is an ancient way and a not a very effective way that we have tried to create a sense of control or maintain a sense of control. It's by telling ourselves stories, basically. We tell ourselves stories and then, of course, we tell each other stories. And Culturally, we're telling stories about the way it is. And we all feel, on a relative level, a little safer, but we don't realize the consequence of having to believe or having to be identified with all these different stories. I mean, on one level, it's just so cumbersome because we're always bumping up against people who have a different story. And then, then we feel threat our story feels threatened. Like, Am I right? Are they right? There's a funny story that Jack Cornfield tells in this chapter uh, that I heard Ajahn Tomato tell, where he was, Ajahn Tomato is this Western monk, and he was in England for a number of years, left Thailand where he had practiced with Ajahn Chah, his teacher, and then he was going to go back to spend some time in Thailand, and he was bringing a, a Western Buddhist nun with him, and he was telling this Western nun about this other Buddhist man in Thailand, another Westerner, and how wonderful she was, and was really looking forward to her being able to be mentored by this senior nun. And when they arrived in Thailand, he finds out that this senior nun had left the monastery and had joined one of the Christian missionaries and was trying to convert the Buddhists, <laughs> including the Buddhists at Ajahn Chah's monastery. And it just blew Ajahn Tomato's mind. He just could not understand how this person who we had so much respect for could somehow do this. You know, like this betrayal. And so he eventually asked Ajahn Chah, now how could this happen? And Ajahn Chah said to him, just to be, just to kind of help him see what he was doing. You know, that he was stuck, identified with the view. Maybe she's right. <laughs> and he really got it. I mean, that was just what he needed to hear. Because he realized how attached he was to his idea. You know, Buddhism is better than missionary work, Christian missionary work. How we get, we feel so safe, feel so appropriate to be fixed with our views, right? That's why we're attached, because it feels right. And then we don't realize how the mind, the personality, it gets dependent on the certainty. So it's, it's not that the opinion, having an opinion itself is toxic or bad, but it's when the ego starts to feel dependent on the certainty, the safety that the attachment to the opinion gives. And then, this is the really tragic thing. We start, and this is the basic delusion, we start believing that life should be certain. We start to equate that uh, happiness is about certainty. 
about safety, about control. So then we really get screwed because our whole life now becomes about creating meaning to shore up the sense of certainty and safety. And fighting again, psychologically fighting against threats to the safety we're deriving from our thoughts about things, our ideas about things, our certainty about things. But of course, there's never been this certainty. The whole idea of certainty and uncertainty, they're just constructs. You know, even the idea of insecurity, like we talk a lot in, in Buddhist circles about insecurity, vulnerability, um, fragility, impermanence. But impermanence, the teaching of impermanence and insecurity, it's just medicine for a deluded human being that's been fixated on the idea of certainty and permanence. Right? So then we need some medicine called impermanence, uncertainty, insecurity, vulnerability. But the fact is, neither of these stories we have to cling to. But we use the teaching of insecurity to reveal, to illuminate how attached we are to security, to certainty. And then we let go into the middle way. The middle way isn't like taking um, our stance with insecurity. Well, life is just really insecure. It's really uncertain. It's really impermanent. And that's just how it is. But by opening to that end, we find this middle way. We don't need to define the world as permanent or impermanent. It's just what it is. We don't have to label it at all. Impermanent compared to what? Well, impermanent compared to the, the, the deluded idea that it was permanent. Uncertain in relationship to the deluded idea that it was certain, that I was right, you know. And isn't that what we normally do in life? We normally have periods of time where there's real arrogance, like, I'm healthy and I'm not going to get sick. Not that we don't say that, that we actually say that to ourselves. But unconsciously, we just assume when we're healthy, we're not going to get sick. We're always surprised when we get sick, or when something bad happens to us. When someone steals our car, or when somebody, you know, does something to us. It always is surprising because we have this arrogance that whatever we're experiencing, you know, it's going to stay this way. But it always changes. So it's like not being surprised. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. This is the middle way. There has never been uncertainty, uh, there's never been certainty, and there's never really been uncertainty. It's just, it's always been the way that it's been. So we're not, we're not like, uh, the practice isn't about sort of opening to uncertainty or it's just opening to the way that it's always been. We're just dropping delusion. I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, saying, you know, it's, it's not that we have to let go of anything but delusion. Only, it's only delusion we have to let go of. We only have to let go of what never was true to begin with. So it's not, it shouldn't feel like this, sometimes it feels like, oh, this practice is so demanding. It demands that we let go of everything, 
but actually we're only letting go of our delusion, our wrong view, what wasn't ever true. And by doing that, we come into alignment with the way it is, the middle way, or in Buddhism we call it the Dhamma, the way that it is. So the mind not fixed on good and bad, this and that, it's not afraid of concepts, because that would be a fixed view that concepts are bad. You know, that would just be another concept to be attached to. And then we could have wars with those people who think concepts are good. You know? And that's what happens over and over again. People are threatened by people with different views. And we justify all kinds of things. The people, when we can define people as being different than us, threatened by them in some ways. So we're only letting go of the illusion of control and also the illusion of non-control. Because even the idea of not being in control implies this attachment to there is somebody who's not in control. So we don't need that idea, that fixed notion either. I remember this powerful insight I had once around doubt. You know, for a long time, I wasn't aware of how oppressive my doubt was. And then I got, I started practicing, and I got very aware of this pattern of doubting all the time. And just fear, just a lot of habit energy, conditioned habit energy around fear. And, uh, but it felt personal. I was aware of it, but it felt personal. It felt like there's a somebody who has a lot of fear that needs to learn how to let go of the fear. Needs to learn how to be free of fear. But then at some point I realized, at this particular moment and then many moments leading up to it and after it, you know, realized that it's always, you know, the life or whatever, it's always been the way that it's been. It will always be the way that it is. It's like the doubt, the fear doesn't change anything. It doesn't like make me more safe. It doesn't do anything but hurt. To really see that life is just the way that it is and the mind's grasping or clinging or reacting doesn't change the way that it is. There's a famous teaching, again, from Shantideva, this, I think, ninth-century Buddhist Indian monk, famous saint in the Buddhist tradition. This is a, just a paraphrase, but he said something like, if there's a problem and there's something you can do, we'll do it. And if there's nothing you can do about the problem, well, then there's nothing you can do. But in either case, there's no reason to get tight. There's no reason to suffer. So life is a series of things that either we can't address or we can't address. And if we can't address it, well then address it. And if we can't address it, then we can't address it. But what's the point about getting tight? Why get tight? Why justify being tight, being reactive? We want to challenge ourselves. This is the middle way. The middle way is realizing that there's no need, no reason to be tight. 
or another way we could say it, life is to be trusted. Another person that Jack Hartsville quotes, it's such a wonderful quote because of who it comes from. Most of you probably know who Helen Keller was. But in case you don't, you know, she, when I grew up, there was this great movie made probably in the late 50s or 60s, I'm not sure when, about her, so it sort of was imprinted in my mind. So as a young girl, she had a high fever, became blind, deaf, and because she was so young, she didn't learn to speak for a long time. Um, so obviously, she was quite removed from the world, this little girl, growing up without seeing or hearing not being able to speak or communicate for a long time. And uh, later, she became this very famous person and seemed to have quite a bit of wisdom. And this quote that you see around, she said, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor did the children as a whole experience. Avoiding danger is not safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So this is it. Life is either a daring adventure or we get involved with creating meaning using thoughts, opinions, and fixing to them the mind, attaching to them as a defense from life. So either, in a way, we have two choices. We can live life and be enlivened by it, this daring adventure, or we can live life and try to avoid it by thinking about it, by having ideas that we get attached to about it. Right? We could sit and debate what happens at death forever, you know, and argue and study, or, you know, how, you know, there's just so many, you know, academics and philosophers and religious people that are really about trying to get the right meaning, the right ideas, line them up, like get your ducks in a row, and then when they get when the world happens, we experience something, and our ideas get rocked because they're not in alignment with what we expect. Then we desperately, you know, reorganize our ideas, get the ducks in a row again, until life again intervenes, and our ideas don't make sense with what we're experiencing. So you think we learn about this other possibility, you know, to live in this naked, this free way free of the mind's dependence on ideas, not grasping. So we're learning to trust Dhamma, things as they are, not trust our ideas about things, not be against the ideas or concepts, but not being dependent on them. And what this frees us up from also is this very toxic idea of perfection that all of us, to some degree at least, are under the influence of. You know, we, we have ideas about perfection in terms of our friends and partners, in terms of ourselves, in terms of the 
society in terms of places like common ground, you know, the ideal. And then life is very good at not living up to concepts because life can never be like a thought about life. You know, in the same way that our thought about chili doesn't taste like chili. And if you, even if you were a really amazing artist and you could draw a picture of a bowl of chili and you could sort of list all the ingredients and you're like really good with adjectives, you could describe the chili, you know, and the smoked peppers, chilies, and the this and the that. Still, it's just not even in the same ballpark as eating chili, no matter how good that was. And we get a sense of how dead the world of ideas and concepts are compared to life. They're literally, it's like a missing an important dimension. It's flat. And the thing about living in that world of concepts and being attached to concepts is because it's flat, we owe, which in Buddhism we call dukkha, there's some suffering, there's inherent stress. It just doesn't feel right to be by our ideas of, our, of ourselves, our ideas of life in general. It always feels off or flat. And because it feels off and flat, it feels dead, what do we do? We try desperately to feel alive, but we do it by thinking about things. Even when we go on an amazing vacation, you know, and have amazing experiences, we're thinking about those experiences. We're not just experiencing we're categorizing our experience. Isn't this wonderful? This is so great. I'm so glad I'm here. That's not experiencing. That's thinking about the experience and categorizing and creating dependence on it. This was a really good moment. This was a really bad moment. This bad moment was probably one of my worst. Was it the worst? <laughs> you know, it's like always working in this way. And we're never, when is that done? When have we got our ducks enough in a row? The thing about living in that flat world of concepts, dependence of concepts, is it's always being threatened by life. Dhamma, the way that it is, which is alive and undefinable. It's never, like the Buddha said in one of his talks, no matter how you ever imagine it, it will always be other than that. So life, or Dhamma, the way that it is, never is in alignment with our thoughts about it. That's why even the teachings of the Buddha, which of course are ideas, they're concepts too, right? We're talking, <laughs> we're using ideas and concepts. But the way the Buddha gets away with concepts is he uses concepts to aim the mind toward this direct experiencing. Right? So he talks about, he creates models and you know, ways of teaching that are all about directing the heart, the mind, toward this balance, this clear, relaxed presence, full-blown exposure to things as they are, trusting, allowing, opening, releasing, releasing the sense, you know, experiencing life in an undescended way, not descended with our thoughts. So when you go home tonight, you meet your cat, or you meet your partner, or you meet whoever you live with, or you meet yourself if you're living alone, you know, just 
see, like, can you do that in an undefended way, or do you immediately project thought? And then if you do, you can see that and meet that in an undefended way, like not be confused by the, any concept that the mind ought to have it project. Any idea? This is weird. Oh yeah, that's just a thought. No, no, it's really weird. <laughs> you see this sort of two worlds. The world of dependence on thought and the world free from that dependence. And you can see. And you just notice when you... Don't worry when you go here, because you're going to go here. Just notice how constricted that world is. It always has dukkha. And how liberating and free and open and alive this world is. Just keep learning that lesson. When you're here, notice how alive it is. When you're here, notice how dead it is. One of the most quoted passages from the Buddha is he says, Mindfulness is the path to the deathless, to being enlivened by life. Those who are negligent, who aren't mindful, are as if already dead. Right? So when we're not mindful, we're not in the moment, but dependent on thoughts, we're as if already dead. Attachment to the thoughts about things, it's as if we're reading our narration about life instead of living life. So I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from people. You might have some experiences you'd like to share with the group. You might have questions. Whatever seems relevant. Any thoughts come to mind? Yeah, you're right. I'm not sure that I can even articulate what I'm thinking, but here you're talking about this and that, but then saying there's the world of concepts and the world where we're aware of what it is. And because a lot of what you've been saying is about this and that side of the world, we're in the middle. But I don't they feel that there's middle because there's concepts and being present. Yeah, when, when, when we're in the world of concepts, we swing between aversion and greed, basically. So the middle, when, when we're aware that concepts are just concepts, thoughts are just thoughts, then the middle way arises, it appears, basically as a, another way of being, where the mind isn't rejecting or grasping anything. Because the grasping, the, the sort of struggle with aversion and greed, depends on the concept of good and bad. See, we just assume good and bad is that's just inherent. But good and bad is just a concept that we believe in. We believe in the concept of good and bad. That everything can be categorized, categorized as good or bad or I don't care. And uh, that, that doesn't mean that things aren't pleasant or unpleasant, but we don't need to categorize it. We don't need to give up personal value to things. And that all comes with you know, the dependence on ideas or language. Does that make sense? Well, like I said, uh, you're right. The, the Dharma, the, as, in terms of the teachings of the Buddha, 
you know, we're saying they're good. The teachings of we're good. And I'm going to read and I'm going to study. And God, maybe I'll even try it out, you know. But then, at that point, we leave behind the idea that the teachings of the Buddha are good, or being present is good, because at that moment of practicing, that's just a thought, that these teachings are good, or that I should be present, that's just a thought, that's grasping. So at that moment, that's out of Yeah, or I should go back to the breath. Oh, that's greed. Not, oh yeah, I really should go back to the breath. But you wanna, we really want to see, oh, that's just greed. Or that's just fear, you know, whatever is a particular flavor. Oh, that's just that. I don't have to be identified with that thought. So we're learning to trust the wisdom that sees things as they are, instead of trusting what our narration is telling us is happening. Yeah, Ellen. Real loud, Ellen. kind of big experience in life. 
I've got your name already. Can you say it again? Gabriel. You're going to have to be real loud to get to the other end of the room. better to describe that process in a more visceral way, um, even though that sort of picture you painted sounds right to me, that, that the I involves a grasping, you know. So it's like the middle way is like the mind isn't using grasping in any way, isn't dependent on grasping. It's like abandoned that strategy. Because when we're averse to something we're grasping, when we're wanting something, we're grasping. When we're confused, we're grasping. Whenever there's self-centered activity, there's grasping. So the middle way is just dropping that way of being, like grasping as a way of being. And that's why it's hard for us, because grasping for us, just the way the mind's conditioned, is synonymous with being a somebody who's in control. And even, like, not wanting to have to be a somebody in control is also grasping, because that's also control. It's like, I want out. That's also grasping. So the middle way isn't about neglecting life or wanting out from life. It's really about a wholehearted involvement or engagement, but not with grasping, not with that self-centered grasping. So that's why it's a... It's like it has to be a discovery that there's this other way of being. It's something that we discover that is unfamiliar because it's been unused. Did you have a thought? And then one of the things to confirm that understanding is just notice that when you are suffering, when we're suffering, it's something we're constructing in our mind. I don't like this. I want things to be other than this way. And then the, the tension or the stress that goes with that view. And then we don't have, like, this is, a, this is also part of the insight that comes in practice is we see that suffering always corresponds with an activity in the mind. And when the mind ceases that activity, the experience of suffering ceases. With that, there is no suffering without the mind doing something. Grasping. You know, that's usually the word we use in, in Buddhism. 
for ourselves and for all beings. 